Well, we are kicking off a series today called Down to Earth. Look at your neighbor and say, Down to Earth. Ever heard someone say that? That person is so down to earth. And essentially when we say that, what are we meaning? That person is so genuine. They're so approachable. They're so personal. They're so real. They're authentic. There's no pretense. That person is down to earth. And in this series, we are seeking to establish that is the case with Jesus, that he is down to earth. He not only came from heaven to earth, uh, he is not just a powerful God. He's not just a purposeful God. He is a personal God that you can have a relationship with him. And he desires uh, to be in community with us in a way that sometimes goes overlooked or unappreciated. But our God is relatable. And that's what the Christmas story is all about, that Jesus came uh, to earth and became like us and in turn extended an invitation for you and I uh, to become like him. He's so down to earth and my prayer is that in this season, every single one of us, whether you've been a Christian for 40 years or whether you're not a Christian at all, uh, that we would find ourselves growing in our relationship with Jesus and growing in our confidence in how we approach him and how we relate to this good news of the gospel, amen? And I'm excited because we are going to look at John's account of the Christmas story. Now, if you're new to the Bible, there are four books in the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and they are known as the Gospels. They're pretty much in the middle of your Bible, and they encompass the life, the ministry, the teaching, the miracles, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And they do so uh, in just really profound and beautiful ways. And what I love about John's Gospel is John was the last to write his Gospel. And have you ever found that the person who goes last always is the best? I personally think that John's account is the best one. I love it, and I'm gonna try to convince you of the same. Uh, but maybe you can relate to this. Maybe this last week at Thanksgiving, you all gathered around the table, and like most families, you, you go around, and everyone has to say what they're thankful for. And it always uh, is uncomfortable when you have to go first, right? And somehow we come unprepared to this moment often. And, and so you fumbled your way through it and you're like, I, you know, I'm thankful for my kids. And I'm thankful for my wife and I'm thankful for this job. And it was really clumsy. And then it made its way around the table and your sister got to go last. And she like stood up and she had notes and she did a whole presentation and everybody was crying. You're like, oh, it's not fair. You got to go last. You got to hear all of us share our items of thankfulness. And then you got to up every single one of us. And I feel like that in many cases is John. John was the last to write his and he got to kind of look at how others approached it and he says, oh, I'm gonna take a different take on this Christmas narrative. And what you need to know is John is not some guy passing on secondhand information. He is not one generation passing on the previous generation's wise tale or urban legend. No, John was an eyewitness. In fact, John was a dear friend. You could argue that John was one of Jesus's best friends. So much so that when Jesus is on the cross, hanging about to breathe his last breath, he looks down upon his mother Mary and he looks at John and says, I need you to take care of my mother. Now, do a survey of your friends. And which of your friends would you say, hey, if something happens to me, you're responsible for my mother? And most of us would disqualify most of our friends, right? Jesus looked at John and he had such a confidence and such a strong relationship and connection with John. He said, hey, I trust you 
with my mom. And so just know that what John writes comes from a place of personal experience, personal confidence, in which he had a front row seat uh, to this Jesus. And what he says carries a ton of weight. And where Matthew and Luke kind of give us the, the classical Christmas narrative, they tell us of all the characters, the angels and the shepherds, and you know, there's Mary and Joseph and the wise men, and Jesus is born in a stable amongst the cast of Charlotte's Web, and it's this really cute and endearing scene. John takes a different approach, and he actually doesn't give us any of the buildup. He doesn't give us any of the characters or how that story plays out. He just starts out like this. He says, in the beginning was the word. Someone say the word. Now, chances are, many of you, you have a Bible that stresses the word. In fact, if you notice, maybe sometimes in your Bible, this statement is in all caps. Basically, how John wrote it was to distinguish, hey, this is not the word. It's not a word. It is the word. This is the pinnacle of the idea. He says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God. In fact, the word was God. And he goes on to say, he was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made and without him, nothing was made that has been made. And it's amazing to me because John comes out and where the others slow play the idea. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they basically have this slow build to establishing, hey, Jesus is God, right? And so they, they start out with the Christmas narrative that builds to the crucifixion, that builds to the resurrection. And by the time you're done reading Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you think to yourself, Jesus is God. And what's so different is John comes right out the gate and in the first sentence, he says, Jesus is God. Like, hey, just so you know, I'm not gonna slow play this. I'm not gonna gradually build you into this idea. I'm going to start right off the bat by telling you who he is. And then I'm gonna spend the rest of my book and letter to you defending and establishing that reality. And folks, in case you haven't been told or need to be reminded, Jesus is God. He's God. He's this amazing reality that he took on human flesh. And this introduces to us a pretty critical theological construct that if you are building your theological tool belt, this one is big. And this would be known as the incarnation. Now again, uh, I tend to geek out over scripture and know that this was gonna be a little more heady, but I think if you lean in, it might serve you well. And if you're not a Christian, this might give you some clarity as to what we actually believe. But the incarnation is this truth that Jesus, the Son of God, took on human flesh. Essentially, to say it cute in a way that you could remember, is the incarnation means God in a bod. Right, there it is. And he, he took on human flesh. And, and this has been perplexing and just intriguing and fascinating to theologians and philosophers all throughout the ages. And I'm telling you, this is a big one. In fact, I would say, personally, the incarnation would be in my top five beliefs. This is a big idea. It's more than just, hey, Jesus arrived on the scene. No, what he embodied and what he represented and what he ushered into humanity changes the game. In fact, he establishes in this moment one of two miracles that set Christianity apart from anything else in the world. And just know there's nothing that can compare to this. There's nothing that can, can uh put a claim beside it that even competes with these two miracles. And it is this, 
the conception in the womb and the resurrection of the tomb. These two miracles set Christianity apart from any other religion, faith, worldview, or philosophy, the conception in the womb and the resurrection in the tomb. And I love that because God says it in such a way that it's like a rhyme. Like I could freestyle off that bad boy, right? Turn that into a rap. And I would say when we think of these two miracles, most people get really excited about the resurrection in the tomb. Uh, Easter is this big celebration, and I find that most people seem to be more impressed with the resurrection in the tomb, which certainly is uh, impressive. But I would argue that the conception in the womb is a more impressive miracle, that God shrunk down to our minute state, and he became like us, that the infinite became an infant. This is a really big idea. And what I love about it is John immediately establishes Jesus as God and he establishes Jesus as God in the flesh. And this idea of the incarnation, it has tripped a lot of people up over the ages. Uh, for a long time during the Middle Ages, there's this common belief that people thought Jesus was one person with two natures. Now lean in on this. And what that basically created was this faulty understanding of the incarnation where people thought, hey, he had these two personalities and at any given moment, he would switch between the two personalities. And this is a error in theology because essentially what that does is it establishes God as a schizophrenic and that's not what scripture would teach. If you want to do a deeper dive into the theology of the incarnation, um, I would say you should focus on these three things. These are three attributes of God, the immutability of God, the impassibility of God, and the immeasurability of God. And every single week I get up here, my challenge is to one, speak to some of you who you've been a Christian for the majority of your life and you are a student of God's word and you take very seriously your faith, as well as to speak to some of you who have no context for scripture and give you some handles as we lead into this. And I would just say, if you want to grow in your understanding of the incarnation, these would be three areas that you should look into because what will happen is it will expand your understanding of the concept and it will come with more confidence, more delight, more joy, and more motivation to continue leaning in on Christ. Now, to give you uh, the cliff notes, so you have a working definition of these. The immutability of God means God never changes. And sometimes you'll hear this in our music. Sometimes you'll hear this in the Bible verses that we quote. Scripture says in Hebrews that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So God never changes, which is really great because we live in a world full of inconsistent people. And the one thing that you can bank on is the consistency and the faithfulness and the dependability of our God because he never changes. He doesn't need to be improved. He doesn't need humanity to come along and make alterations and adjustments to him. He is perfect from the beginning and he never changes. And the one that trips a lot of people up is this idea of the impassibility of God. Now track with me on this. The immutability means God never changes, but the impassibility means God cannot be roused to passion and emotion, which immediately will cause some to be like, wait a second, is that true? Because all throughout the Bible, you see emotion in God. You see God is loving, God is merciful, God is compassionate. You even see that God has a righteous anger at times. So what does this idea of impassibility mean? 
And essentially, the best way to say it is if you and I were driving down the road and you were to hang a right, and as you come around the corner, you see a homeless child on the street corner who clearly looks like they're starving, what's gonna happen to you? you are gonna be moved to compassion. In that moment, as you turn the corner and you see the child, you are gonna have more compassion the moment you see the child than you did before you turned the corner. Does that make sense? You're gonna be moved to compassion. This idea of God being impassable means God is never moved to emotion. He's never moved to goodness. He's never moved to fulfill his attributes because God is permanently always at the fullness of all those things. This is super encouraging. What, what this means, and some of you, you were, you were sold the wrong idea. And maybe some of you are trying to approach your faith in the wrong way. What this means is you don't have to manipulate God. You don't have to pull his heartstrings. You don't have to conjure up some situation that would make God feel stronger about you. No, God is at all times always good, he's always loving, he's always wise, he's always merciful, he's always compassionate. And this is amazing because it tells us that every single day we can wake up to the reality that God in the fullness of his goodness is leaning into our lives. Is that encouraging? That God is impassable. And it is just learning to understand that he is always fully good and aimed in my direction. And this idea of immeasurability means that God is infinitely loving, infinitely wise, infinitely compassionate, infinitely merciful, infinitely good, infinitely powerful. So you cannot exhaust the goodness of God. And these three concepts boiled into uh, the incarnation, uh, what it does is it really expands. Whoa, what Christmas represents is a much bigger deal than most people are thinking. And the early church fathers, they had a phrase for this. They would call it actus purus, which if I wasn't afraid of needles, this would be a tattoo. And actus purus simply means perfect in every situation, perfect at all times. Anyone thankful for a God that despite your shortcomings, despite your inconsistencies, despite the fact that we all come up short, he is perfect at all times, in all situations. He is actus purus, it's, it's amazing. And what you have to understand is John immediately comes right out in the first sentence, and what does he say? In the beginning was the word. And that was a philosophical term. John is living in a predominantly Greco-Roman world in which the philosophers of the day had shaped much of society and their understanding of the world. And John is living at a time in history that was shaped by these three individuals. Anyone know who these three guys are? This is Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle. And I know this is a lot of nerdy information, but lean in on me. These three philosophers uh, are, would be known as the fathers of Western philosophy and they have shaped so much of our society and worldview. And it is from the lineage of these three philosophers that came these three concepts, the logos, ethos, and pathos. Now in this situation, John is referring to one of these. And which one is he referring to? The logos, so when he says, in the beginning was the word, the original term he would have used was logos. And here's the definition of these words. 
Logos means logic and reasoning. Ethos means ethics and credibility. And pathos means passion and emotions. So, so track with me on this. John sits down and he says, all right, I'm going to write my gospel. I am living in a predominantly Greco-Roman world where these philosophers have shaped so much of our worldview and our understanding, and they have established the critical necessity of logic and reasoning. And he says, okay, in the beginning was the logos. Essentially what he's saying is, in the beginning was the source of all logic and all reasoning. Track with me? In the beginning was the source of all logic and all reasoning. And the source of all logic and reasoning was with God. In fact, the source of all logic and reasoning was God. And, and here's, there's, there's an agenda that I have here, and that is this. Some of you are falling prey to culture's argument that is trying to dismantle what you believe. And it's this idea that Christianity is some shallow faith that doesn't carry substance and you have to check your brain at the door before you enter a church. And that just flies in the face of what John is saying. John says, no, no, no. Right off the bat, you should know that this Jesus requires your intellectual fervor and your engagement. Don't check your brain at the door. No, lean in because what you're gonna find is this Jesus is the source of logic and reasoning. And when you do away with the source of logic and reasoning, expect nonsense, expect chaos. And there are those who will, will push back on this and there's this common argument out there uh, where individuals will try to establish science as the enemy of the faith. You ever heard this? And it's actually quite comical because if you do your own research, you'll find most of the fathers of science were believers. They were individuals who were so mesmerized, motivated, and inspired by creation that they devoted their lives to studying and exploring it, giving way to the field of science. And individuals will try to poke at this, and there's a, a very enthusiastic and, and well-written camp of atheists who would attack this angle of our faith, one of which is Richard Dawkins, who wrote a book called The God Delusion. And he said this. He says, I am against religion, because it teaches us to be satisfied without understanding the world. Wait a second, that's not what John is after. You think religion uh, is some pacifying way of saying, hey, just don't think critically about anything. And John would say to Richard Dawkins, well, that's, that's not the case at all. And there's this uh, emeritus professor by the name of Jen Len uh, John Lennox who I got introduced to through my PhD program. And the guy is, he's fascinating. He is a professor of mathematics at Oxford University. And he has done public debates with Richard Dawkins. And he, in fact, wrote a book in response to much of Richard Dawkins' writings. And he says this. He says, the most incomprehensible thing about the universe is that it's comprehensible. That's a fascinating statement. He says, what makes this so intriguing is our world makes sense. Think about that. He goes on to tell us this. He says, God is not an alternative to science as an explanation. He is not to be understood merely as a God of the gaps. Instead, he is the ground of all explanation. It is his existence which gives rise to the very possibility 
of explanation. Well, he's saying, no, no, there's a logic to this world we live in. There's a logic to life. There's reasoning embedded into our existence. And it's because of God that we can even make sense of anything is what he's saying. He says, it is important to stress this because influential authors such as Richard Dawkins will insist on conceiving of a God as an explanatory alternative to science, an idea. Now watch this, an idea that is nowhere to be found in theological reflection of any depth. In other words, what he's saying is, look, he's like, any theologian worth their salt is not even trying to establish the God Richard Dawkins is talking about. He's saying, Richard Dawkins, you have created a caricature of God that none of us even subscribe to. He goes on to tell us this. He says, Dawkins is therefore tilting at a windmill, dismissing a concept of God that no serious thinker believes in anyway. Such activity is not necessarily to be regarded as a mark of intellectual sophistication. He's saying, listen, that's, that, that conversation uh, is pointless. Nobody who's actually done their homework, who thinks critically, is actually having that conversation. And a tendency that we're all gonna be tempted to develop, especially in this social media-driven culture, is we live in a world where people are cherry-picking ideas left and right. Now, if you've played sports, wave at me if you've understood the concept of cherry picking. Like, I'm a basketball player, and I'm just gotta tell you, if your kid plays with one of my kids and they're cherry picking during the game, I'm gonna holler at your kid because that's really frustrating. What cherry picking is is saying, hey, I'm only gonna play offense and I'm not gonna get back on defense and I'm not gonna rebound and I'm not gonna do the other hard parts of the game. I'm just gonna sit at midcourt and the moment our team secures the ball, I'm just gonna run down so I'm wide open and I can get an uncontested layup. That's cherry picking. Essentially, the idea is it is so much easier to pick cherries than it is to plant a cherry tree. And I think what John is establishing right off the bat in his his letter is, no, no, as believers, uh, we're not lazy in our thinking. As leaders, we just don't go around just cherry-picking ideas where we live in a world where people can just recite really good talking points, but they can't expound on the idea. And say, no, be a person of substance. Be a person who thinks critically about what you believe because at the end of the day, folks, if you're gonna bet your life on this Jesus, I mean, if you're gonna anchor your hope and your eternity to this Jesus, if you think your identity and your purpose rest in this Jesus, if you think this Jesus defeated death, hell, and the grave, my goodness, you owe it to yourself and you owe it to your spouse and you owe it to your kids to do your own research so you can have some confidence in this God that we serve. He is a big deal. And Lennox is basically saying, he's like, listen, what makes the universe incomprehensible is that it's comprehensible. It actually makes sense. And I, I think sometimes we overlook this, but have you ever just thought, man, there's, there's so many sophisticated systems hardwired into creation. You've got all these different cycles that you can look at things and be like, well, well that actually makes sense. Agriculture, it makes sense. Mathematics, it makes sense. The water cycle makes sense. You know, you have all these different things. You can even look at anatomy and think, well, that makes sense. You can see the difference between a male body and a female body and how the two complement each other and how that leads to procreation. It makes sense. We understand how some things work. And the question is, is well, clearly, there is a massive brain behind this. 
who was the brilliant genius who thought of all of this? And John's like, Jesus. That's what I'm trying to get at. He's saying, in the beginning was the source of all logic, all wisdom, all reasoning, and it is from his brilliance that everything we know came to be. And when he says this, it almost seems to echo and repeat the very first verse of the entire Bible. John 1 sounds a lot like Genesis 1. Very first sentence of the Bible reads like this. In the beginning, God, say it with me, created, which is really big to understand that God is creator, right? Like he starts everything. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and watch this, and now the earth was formless and empty. Now the the original language there, the term is wohu to bohu, which would also be a gnarly tattoo. (laughs) Say that to your neighbor, say wohu to bohu. And essentially what that statement means is chaos, utter chaos. See, we define chaos as violence and wickedness and what scripture says, no, there is a more daunting version of chaos. It is complete emptiness and nothingness and void. And it says that God looked at complete chaos, emptiness and void, and he created this sophisticated, mesmerizing, magnificent, beautiful, wondering, awe-inspiring creation, which should give every single one of us confidence because we give ourselves over to feelings and thoughts of shame and we are always self-deprecating and we take on feelings of inadequacy and we always question our worth. And what this tells us is we serve a God who looked at utter nothingness and made something beautiful. So the same God looks at me, and despite what I bring to the table, he can create something beautiful in my life as well. And so maybe, just maybe, your insecurity is misplaced because our God only creates wonderful, beautiful things, amen? And that's where you have to understand there's a big difference between God being a creator and God being a craftsman. A craftsman needs material to work with. God can start from absolutely nothing. And John is establishing this big idea of God. He's saying, listen, he is so much bigger, so much grander, so much more magnificent than most people realize. And he starts out and he says, in the beginning was the word and the word was God. And I love it because this is so different than how Matthew and Luke would approach their introduction of Jesus. And paired together, you kind of get this broad understanding of Jesus. And I would say this, with the Gospels, you find that Jesus is both cosmic and cozy. I love that about our God. Like, I mean, he spoke creation into existence. He is infinitely God. And he is also God in infancy. I mean, he is both cosmic and he's cozy. He is such a big deal. And I'm telling you, when you start to understand the magnitude of this miracle, that our God shrunk down to such minute, small fashion, also he could become like you and I. It reminds me of a movie I watched growing up called Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. Remember those jokers were running around in the backyard and like a glade of grass seemed massive? 
I mean, that is like times a million what God does when he becomes like us. He shrinks down to us. And, and I'm amazed by this. And there's three ways that I'm primarily amazed. One, I'm amazed by his creativity. God decides, hey, I'm, I'm gonna redeem the world. I am going to secure eternity. And I'm going to set free those who are in bondage to sin and death. All right, how are you gonna do it? Well, that teenage girl, I'm going to send in God the Son through that woman. And, and I think to myself, that's a terrible plan. <laughs> Anyone else, you're kind of critical of the Christmas plan? Like, I'm, like I would think, like, I would have approached it differently. I would have showed up like Thor. I would have had a business meeting. I would have came in with some spaceships. I would have had all my angels lined up. Like, hey, everyone get together. Here's the PowerPoint. Here's the, you're gonna show up when there's no technology. How are you gonna communicate any of this? You put Jesus in the home of two teenage parents, God the Father, you're, gonna, you're okay with him having a stepdad down there? They're gonna grow up in this village amongst no people. He's supposed to save the world and all he's surrounded by is maybe 70 people. Seems like a terrible plan. And I love it because God is, he's so outside the box in his thinking. And I'm telling you, I get the feeling and the sense that so many people are missing God's activity in their life because they're assuming God is more boring than he actually is. You're just assuming God is gonna be mundane and lethargic and vanilla like everything else in your life. And what you realize is, no, no God's an artist. God is creative. God thinks outside the box. And if you open your heart and your mind to God, he might do something new and he might do something fresh in your life and he might do something that's exhilarating, something that leaves you awe-inspired. He might do something that creates a spiritual momentum in your life. He might do something that has you waking up day after day like, I want more of this Jesus. I want more of this Jesus. I want more of this Jesus because he's wonderful. He's so creative. And what you'll find is in the same way this God was behind this wonderful creation that we live in. You'll find that this God seeks to create something wonderful and beautiful in your life as well. In addition to that, I'm amazed by his commitment. I mean, any of you struggle with being noncommittal? No one ever wants to admit that. It's like, man, this feels like a confessional. <laughs> I mean, just pay attention. January is right around the corner and we're gonna see how noncommittal we all actually are. I look at this and I'm thinking to myself, I think if I'm God, I would just start over. All right, they crashed and burned. Let's go Adam and Eve 2.0. Let's give it another shot. And he's so unwavering in his commitment. I mean, that's actually what's happening in the story of Noah and the ark. Humanity was trending rapidly towards extinction. That's actually what's happening in that story. And God says, mm-mm. I gotta redeem him. I have to save humanity. He goes to such extreme lengths. And what is amazing about the incarnation is it is this, it is this statement of confidence that our God is unwavering, unparalleled, and unreal in his commitment to you and I. See, we, we're all a part of relationships where we know what it's like to be in relationship with people who are noncommittal. We know what it's like to be in a relationship with superficial and flaky friends. And so the moment you make a mistake, friends step away. And the moment you come up short, someone establishes a boundary. And the moment you make an error, suddenly you're put into a category. And so we assume God's commitment to us is like everyone else's commitment to us. Wrong. 
God will never leave you. He'll never forsake you. He's fully on your side. He leans in every moment of every day into your life and he is unwavering in his commitment to you. And so it's, it's finding those moments where you finally turn to God and you open your heart and your mind to God and you realize he's been standing with his arms wide open the entire time. He's unwavering. I know you're going through a crisis and you're thinking about throwing in the towel. He'll never throw in the towel. His commitment in this moment is like, man, he'll, he'll stop at nothing. He'll even send in himself as an infant. I'm amazed by his commitment. And lastly, I'm amazed by his confidence. God, this is how you're gonna do it. You're going to redeem the world by sending an infant. And God's like, absolutely. I'm gonna show up and I'm gonna arrive on the scene in the same square one that they've arrived on. And I'm gonna walk every moment of this life just like them. And I'm gonna go through toddler years and teenage years and I'm gonna face the pressures of this world and the inconvenience and I'm gonna be betrayed and I'm gonna face peer pressure and temptation and I'm gonna be hated and lied about and I'm gonna go through all this stuff and I'm gonna live the same type of things that they live. And I am going to get the job done. And I love this because he shows up with such extreme confidence that now we sit this side of history where this infant in a village has now become the most famous, most influential, most written about, most sung about, most impactful person to ever live who is now celebrated on every continent around the world, who has billions and billions of followers all throughout human history because our God is getting it done. This is amazing. He's getting it done. He's so confident. And yeah, there's, there's work to be done. Our world still has some redemption that needs to take place. But we serve a God who's confident. And I just wonder how many of you would benefit to resting upon his confidence. Sometimes we think the weight of the world rests upon our shoulders and folks, it doesn't. It rests upon his. And you don't have to worry about letting God down because folks, you were never holding him up. And so it's just, hey, we get to live in freedom and we get to live in peace and we get to live in joy because our God is amazing. And the source of all logic and all reasoning who spoke life into existence is on my side, who's working in my life, who's gone before me and who has done the unthinkable on behalf of me. And if, if I'm sitting down with John, I'm like, all right, hey, let's, let's put your letter into a sermon as if John needs my help. This would be my bottom line for his take here. Those who don't make room for Christ, those who don't make room for the source of logic and reasoning, make room for chaos. This is what's happening in our world. The moment you say, hey, let's do it without him. There's no need for this source of logic and reasoning. Okay, we'll just anticipate chaos. Those who don't make room for Christ, they make room for chaos. But that's not gonna be us, right? Because we understand our God is relatable. In addition to that, he's reliable. <laughs> and lastly, he is remarkable. 
which is why you can't show up to Christmas empty-handed. You have to bring a coworker, a friend, a neighbor, someone who doesn't know Jesus because the world needs to know about this Jesus. And we ought to have the best and the most impactful Christmases we've ever had because as a church, we're unyielding in our desire to introduce people to Jesus, amen? And so what would happen at all of our campuses if we just said, hey, I'm showing up to Christmas so people can meet Jesus for the first time because he's relatable, reliable, and remarkable, amen? And I'm telling you, if you make room for Christ this year, it'll make this Christmas season worth it. It'll be beautiful, amen?